From Muse by Clio and the Clio Awards, this is Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. This week on the season finale of Tagline. With inverted tongue From whence does fulfillment come? We wanted people to talk about this, to talk about race. We had never talked about racism and like the, the realities of her being a black woman. The material hits home for me because um, I did get that conversation. I still kind of do get that conversation. The people that are being killed in the streets are black males. And so, you know, once that light went off, we, we did a little bit of a kind of like a self-reflection and we decided maybe we can tailor a message specifically to that audience. We didn't want to have to explain anything because we had a belief that bias is so powerful and so strong that it doesn't require words to experience. The one thing that really stuck out to me is that word privilege. It wasn't about poetry, honestly. It, it, it was about absolute clarity. So it's my job to use whatever privilege or power that I have, whether it's deserved or not, to make a difference. Advertisers love to talk about making the world a better place, but few have walked the walk quite like Procter & Gamble. The packaged goods giant has been a champion of diversity and inclusion in its own ranks and in its advertising for years, particularly since the runaway success of the Like a Girl film for Always in 2014. In recent years, P&G has been especially forceful in addressing racism and racial bias in America. This week, as we wrap up season one of Tagline, we'll look at the trilogy of P&G spots that set the bar for corporate messaging on race. The Talk from 2017, The Look from 2019, and The Choice from 2020. We'll speak with Nadal Ahmed, Brian Barnes, and Greg Hahn, who worked on The Talk at BBDO, Malik Vital, who directed it, Jeff Edwards and Keith Cartwright, who crafted The Look, through their collective Saturday Morning, Justine Armour and John Petrulis at Gray, who worked with Keith on The Choice, and Mark Pritchard at P&G, whose passion for finding purpose beyond profit made all three spots possible. I'm Tim Nudd, editor-in-chief of Muse by Clio, and coming up, it's the story of how Procter & Gamble used the power of creativity to move the conversation about race in America forward at a time of great reckoning for the industry and the country. Season one of Tagline is brought to you by GSTV. For those of you who may not be familiar, there's a good chance you watch GSTV every time you fuel up. GSTV is a national video network that's had incredible growth, now reaching 92 million viewers a month with a unique one-to-one moment of attention. Think about it. What campaign would you run with that moment? On Tagline, we're discussing some of the most memorable spots in history. Imagine how those campaigns, or your next one, could be creatively transformed in context on GSTV. To fuel your next creative campaign, visit gstv.com tagline. On July 25th, 2017, Procter & Gamble posted a film to its social channels that would cause an immediate stir nationwide. Created by BBDO New York, Egami Group, and the director Malik Vital, it showed a series of scenes from the 1950s through the present day of black mothers giving the talk to their sons and daughters. But it wasn't the talk that white America knew about the birds and the bees. 
It was the talk that, for the most part, only black families knew. The talk about what the world had in store for black kids growing up. The pain, bias, and humiliation they would face, and the emotional and physical danger of growing up black in a racist America. Who said that? The lady at the store. That is not a compliment. It's an ugly, nasty word, and you are going to hear it. Nothing I can do about that. But you are not going to let that word hurt you. You got your ID? Yeah. Okay, so stop you. Yeah. Now, when you get pulled over... Mom, I'm a good driver. Baby, don't worry. This is not about you getting a ticket. This is about you not coming home. I'm going to be okay. Right? Okay. Okay, baby. You are not pretty for a black girl. You are beautiful, period. Okay? Don't ever forget that. Beautifully written, shot, and acted, the spot quickly became a cultural flashpoint, earning widespread praise from some and condemnation from others. It would soon force a reckoning inside P&G about just how forcefully the company would stand behind such messaging. But the roots of the project went back much further. On the one hand, it was an update of a P&G initiative dating to 2006 called My Black is Beautiful. But it was also the latest chapter in the long personal journey of Mark Pritchard, P&G's chief brand officer, who'd been thinking about activism, particularly around race, personally and professionally, his entire life. My dad was a bit of an activist. He was actually Mexican. His name was Pritchard because he was adopted by a person with an English name. And my mom was German. So we had a bit of a, an activist mentality. So some of that came naturally. As I started working, I uh, ended up running our cover girl business. I was a, in a, uh, at a spiritual ranch in the Colorado mountains with my, my young family at the time. And at the very end of this spiritual retreat, the, uh, the leader came up to me and said, I hope you know the good that you can do because business will someday be the greatest force for good in the future. And if you choose to do so, you can do a lot of good. And it was one of those blinding moments of clarity for me as I looked upon my three young daughters and, and realized that in business and with the power of advertising, we can really make a difference. Mark and his team worked at the time to change the CoverGirl campaign, to be more diverse and to create a different standard of beauty. And then later, in 2006, now in a global role, Mark helped launch My Black is Beautiful, which was both an employee resource group for black folks inside PNG and an outward-facing effort to shine a light on bias and to empower African-American women to embrace their beauty, health, and wellness. And so in 2016, for the 10th anniversary of the program, Mark wanted to revisit it and make sure it was relevant for the times. What we found as we gained insight with our team is that this insight that black parents have a talk with their children, that the talk is a talk that they will have with them to ensure that they're prepared for the bias, racism, prejudice, and even potential danger that they may face. As we worked with our team, the vast majority who were black, they're like, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's the talk we have. Those of us who were white or not black were like, wait a minute, we have that talk, but that, that's not the talk we have. That's a different talk. 
The same conversations were happening at BBDO New York. To bring My Black is Beautiful up to date, the agency had been talking to black women about their lives and what mattered to them at the time. This was in the disorienting months after Donald Trump was elected president, and many of the mothers were saying, more than ever, it was important for them to have the talk with their children. Nadal Ahmed was a young black creative at BBDO and the copywriter on the talk. Well, when we got briefed, I think every black creative in the agency, which was not very many, <laughs> was on the brief, obviously. I remember we all sat in a bar, um, in the central filing bar inside BBDO. And we all had this kind of just conversation because, you know, there was, you know, all the black creatives were on it, but also there were teams that were maybe like two white men or, you know, the, the creative directors were two white men. And, and there needed to be a dialogue, I think. So I think even from that meeting of like sharing experiences that people didn't realize happened, I think it showed us that it was necessary to give people kind of an, an inside view in these conversations that are happening. And, and even if they don't apply to them or they're not, you know, part of them. Nadal was born in Libya to Sudanese parents. She came to the U.S. at 11 years old. At BBDO, she was paired with a white art director, Brian Barnes. In 2016, and like early 2017, right after the election, racism and, and blatant white supremacy was popping up around the United States. And they reached out to, to BBDO to kind of relaunch this program with, with some real meaning behind it. No products, no logos, and kind of do something that stands up and, and makes a statement to, to impact the social injustice that was happening at the time. It felt actually really nice to have something like this right after the election, because I think we all felt very helpless and very powerless. And um, it was, you know, it was nice to work on a piece of creative where it, it felt like at least there was an outlet for some of that frustration. Nadal and Brian had known each other for years. They'd been at ad school together in Texas and both worked at Tracy Locke in Dallas before moving to New York in 2014. But as close as they were, they really hadn't talked much about race. And in that sense, their relationship mirrored the gap in America generally between Black people and their would-be allies in the white community. I know her more as a friend than a close colleague or co-worker. So even when we just started talking about this project, I learned things about Nadal that I had never... We had never talked about racism and like the, the realities of her being a Black woman. And that was just kind of a very uncomfortable thing for me. But then I just realized that's the whole point of the need for us to make a film that felt like it would generate some empathy from people who are not Black. And I just remember her telling stories about advice that she would give her little her younger brother about walking home alone and things like that. And they were just really awakening and just really powerful. I grew up in the U.S. Like I moved to the U.S. when I was about 11. But my experience of being Black in the U.S. is different than somebody who was born here. I immigrated here. The real thing that people reference when they say the talk is the talk about the police. And that's not something I think the conversation that I or my father would have had to have so seriously, especially with my younger brother, when he started driving or when he started working and walking home from work. It's, it takes on these really high stakes when you move to the U.S. just because you know police violence is such an issue. So for me, I think I, I drew on that in kind of this this thing that even if, you know, your family hasn't been here for generations, you have to become part of, and, and whether you like it or not, because it's, in some cases, a matter of life or death. While Nadal had a unique point of view thanks to her upbringing, the perspective that Brian and the other white creatives had was useful, too. I think the biggest thing we wanted to do was that this is not an ad for Black people. It really wasn't. I don't think Black people need to know about this. It's not news. Obviously, it's, it's nice to feel seen or, or heard in a piece of work, but ultimately, it's really for 
everyone else to understand that this is what's happening. So it's, I think it's really important that Brian brought the perspective and, and other you know, people on the team brought the perspective of, is this connecting with you? Is this teaching you something new? Is it resonating with you? And there were certain things that I remember Nadal being like, we need to have a story that's about police. We need to have a story that's about beauty. You know, we need to have a story that's about getting bias on on a sports team. Um, you know, when you're the only black kid on the on the baseball team. So I remember we did have scenarios built into the script when we presented it, and then and then the clients bought it right there. And that's what we made. It's actually, I would say. One of those projects where what we presented was actually very, very close to what we produced. There wasn't really much feedback on the script itself. There was a few things about like casting and, and things like that that were switched around. But I would say yeah, I was actually very true to what was presented. There are six scenes in the talk. It begins and ends in the 1950s with a mother whose daughter's been told by another adult in town that she's pretty for a black girl. There's also a boy who's chased home and called a racial slur by some white kids. Another boy ostracized on a baseball team and a girl nervous to go to summer camp, a teenage boy walking home from practice in the city with sirens in the background, and a teenage girl learning to drive, who's shocked to realize why her mom's worried about her getting pulled over. Nothing's over-explained, and there's a remarkable mix of tenderness, sadness, and fear in each scene, leaving the viewer to realize not only that the talk happens, but how it deeply embodies the pain of black parents in America, terrified for their children and what the kids have to deal with as well. I was a bit protective of the, of the script just because it's really hard to write as a Black person or for a Black person. Not everyone talks the same, you know? And also, so being conscious of different eras, like how, you know, a mother in the 1960s in the South would talk versus maybe a more um, uh, wealthy Black woman would talk now in the suburbs, like things like that. Um, uh, was was an interesting writing exercise, but also just this balance of not whitewashing the dialogue too much. I think not perpetuating stereotypes about how people talk, but also not trying to overcorrect and make it sound forced or, or anything like that. You could take these words and it could be one fluid talk. And we thought it was just really powerful to show that the same talk has been going on since forever. And just showing that this talk is still going on today and it's maybe only, maybe just getting even worse. And it just shows the power of it and, and how much hasn't changed and how much we need to change. In the end, BBDO chose Malik Vital to direct the piece. Malik was a young black director born and raised in LA whose feature film debut, Imperial Dreams, had won the Audience Award at Sundance a few years before. Anna Hashmi, co-founder of The Corner Shop, had seen the film and signed Malik to rep him for commercials. They were really just getting started on work for his reel when BBDO came to them with the project. She was very kind of open and clear in saying, like, we should just throw everything at this and not make this about making money. Let's just make it about making something really special. You know, the approach that I wanted to take with it was just kind of exploring the humanity in each one of the relationships and also explore, like, the different motivations behind each one of the parents speaking with their children. So it didn't feel like the same kind of emotional beat each time. And, you know, the kids had different responses to what they were coming across. So some kids were just like learning it for the first time. Some kids were angry. Some kids were still kind of questioning what's going to happen. Malik had a month to prep, which was definitely a luxury. He wanted actors who would all bring something different, but also share an emotional openness. While visiting a film set where a friend was shooting, he happened to find Lori Odom, who brings such intensity as the mom in the opening and closing scenes, opposite the child actress Lydia Jewett. 
I went up to her at like a craft service and I was like, Hey, I love your work. And I was like, are you going to be around in a couple of weeks? I'm making a commercial. Would you be interested? And she was like, yeah, sure. I'll be around. And she literally put something on tape on her cell phone right there for me. And I was able to kind of like shoot that over to the casting director. And a lot of it kind of came together. It was just like, oh, would this person work with this person? So it was like chemistry and also people that just would also let us into themselves that were a little vulnerable. And I think that was something special about her performance too. Um, where like at the end, she's she's telling her daughter, you are beautiful, but she's also trying to hold back on how painful it is for her. So it's we get the history and we see her trying to protect the future at the same beat, you know? As soon as we shot that, it was just chills on set. I, I'm pretty sure the client was crying. Pretty sure we only did like three takes and we had it in the first take. It, it was a very moving experience. Yeah, it set the whole tone for the rest of the shoot. I think Lydia and Lori really pull you in. And I think Lydia is just, I think, just seeing her on set, I think we just all wanted to squeeze her like all the time. So she's like this like, you know, beautiful like kind of purity and, and innocence in her. And I think it, it made a really nice kind of juxtaposition with the mom because I think what Lori captured so well is that this this unique position that black mothers are put in where there's this kind of like softness that you have towards your child and you want to protect them. But also there's this toughness because you know you're sending them out in a world where that's not going to be very kind to them a lot of the time. The young girl is also, she's, she was just so intelligent and knew what we were doing story-wise. So she was able to kind of play that innocence in a way that was, I don't know, it drew us in. But she also like, she didn't, it wasn't going over her head. She knew exactly what was going on. So she was able to like actually perform. I mean, for me, it was cool. It was my first time working with a Black director, a big part of, of this that we wanted to come through is, is nuance was really, really important. And also um, making sure, because I think a lot of times there's a tendency to kind of box in the Black experience or view it as a monolith. And I think, you know, having someone like me who's an African immigrant versus having Whitney, our producer, who's somebody who grew up, you know, in the U.S. or Malik, who I think had actually, he said a pretty non-traditional like, upbringing. So is the more, I think, the more perspectives that you can get on this, the better, and not trying to tell the story from one point of view. Um, so it was really actually nice um, to have that with Malik and, and his power of, of just getting the performances out of the actors. Yeah, it was a really nice experience. A lot of my work, it thrives off of nuance. And it's nice to be able to have the, that time to really build the, those little micro beats that can make it work and not feel too sappy or feel like we're chasing tears. The strength is, it's a conversation, you know, and I think it, it should be. It shouldn't be damning anyone. It should just be sharing a perspective and inviting people into intimate talk between a parent and their child. So even like those little mini micro beats of, the teenager in a car with her mom and the mom says, I just want you to come back safely. And she says, I'm going to, the teenage girl says, I'm going to be okay. Right. And it's a question, but also a statement. And those little like nuanced things came about on set by just kind of working it, having more conversation. So yeah, we just, we just wanted to kind of make sure that it was dynamic and more than anything, you kind of felt empathy for the different characters. For me personally, actually, the mom from the 90s, I remember, um, you know, with eating eating dinner, um, that was, a, for me, the most emotional one to see perform just because it, it's so subtle. Like, it was just, just the way she like, turns back towards the window 
after he walks away. It's, it's, so there was just so many like, just beautiful performances. They shot for two days. The first day was at Disney Ranch. The next day, they shot in downtown L.A. Visually, the challenge was to make something cinematic but also warm, with moments that put you in the kids' shoes without being melodramatic. And we did isolate some of those moments where, you know, these kids are alone and we wanted to get people into their perspective, whether it be kind of a slower frame rate, you know, with a kid running away from bullies or just, you know, isolating the one teenage boy on the streets as he's like looking over his shoulders, he's walking alone at night. So a lot of this was about like creating a cinematic sense of kind of intimacy and also allowing the audience to get an understanding of their perspective by not getting too splashy or, you know, stylistic with it. We just wanted to like keep them in a pocket, you know, just like a good jazz song. The cinematographer on the spot was Lassa Frank. The production designer was Wynn Thomas, who's worked on most of Spike Lee's films, and who was also production designer on Hidden Figures, which came out a few months before the talk. For Malik, the whole project felt personal, even if the goal was to express something more universal. The material hits home for me because um, I did get that conversation. I still kind of do get that conversation. When I'm pitching on things, I, I realize that I have to kind of elevate what I'm doing to really stand out. Like when I wanted to go to film school, it was like I got into film school, but then my family was kind of there to support me and also say like, this is a good opportunity for you to make sure that you stand out and make sure that you're like five times better than everybody. And I took that to heart. I wasn't partying or I wasn't doing anything extracurricular. It hits home and I think, you know, it just... I guess, you know, we can start to talk about now, especially with what's happening in our culture, is how do we continue to push this conversation forward? What does it mean when we don't have this conversation? But, you know, I, I think it's appropriate, you know? It's, it's appropriate for the moment. So hopefully we can make it so that it's no longer needed. But, you know, one step at a time. At the end of the film, a sentence appears on screen. Let's all talk about the talk so we can end the need to have it. Nadal recalls going back and forth on that line. And, you know, I think what we didn't want it to be is to be something like, it's time to end racism, because that's not something that's probably ever really going to happen. And I think that's not the what we wanted people to do. We wanted to talk people to talk about this, to talk about race. I think people are deeply uncomfortable with this, especially three years ago. And so it was very important for us that it's just about conversation and not shying away from this topic, because until we kind of address it head on, nothing's really going to change. Rich Oreck and Theo Mercado handled the edit at Work Editorial. The first edit came back with some pretty linear storytelling. It was Greg Hahn, then Chief Creative Officer of BBDO New York, who suggested trying a more evocative approach. Well, they had a lot of great footage. They had so much footage in each scene. With the first edit I saw, to me, it felt like it was a bit melodramatic in a way. It played out all the scenes very linearly and fully. Like we saw, few, it was also um, paced kind of evenly throughout. So like you set up the first scene, played it all the way to the end, set up the next scene, played it all the way to the end. And to me, it felt like, I wanted to see a bit more of a um, nonlinear approach to it. And also we didn't need to see all that was going on in every scene. I think bits and pieces of it here and there with the 
both the piece built to a bigger picture was a better way to do it in my mind. So, you know, also like there were some good performances, but there are others that felt like they were a little heavy handed. That, that was my biggest, my biggest thing was to make sure that every performance was lifting its weight in a, the smallest amount of time and letting those moments breathe versus trying to tell every single bit of every single scene. So they wrapped up the edit and were all set to release the spot in April 2017. But then out of the blue, that plan was derailed by another commercial entirely, one that PNG had nothing to do with. We have a divided nation, that is clear. We have a deeply <laughs> divided nation. But today, it seems like everyone has come together to join the protest against the new protest ad from Pepsi. Um, have you guys seen it? Have you guys seen the ad? Well, let me, let me, let me walk you through it. It starts with a throng of beautiful multi-ethnic people protesting in the streets of, I'm gonna guess, Newport, Rhode Island. So far, we don't know what has caused all of America's hot extras to take to the streets. But I'm guessing it's a protest for Attractive Lives Matter. On April 5th, Pepsi rolled out its infamous ad with Kendall Jenner, trivializing Black Lives Matter and suggesting that a can of Pepsi was all you needed to bridge the divide between black and white between protesters and police. It would go down as one of the great advertising fails in history, but for P&G, it posed a more immediate problem. Even though the Pepsi ad betrayed just the kind of ignorance that made the need for the talk so urgent, P&G worried that any corporate messaging around race, at least for a while, would only be taken cynically. So they ended up shelving the spot for four whole months. And it actually almost got canned completely because that was so terrifying, I think, for... The client, but also for us. I mean, for me personally, I was like, as the only Black creative on this, I felt like if this does not go well, it's going to be really, really, really bad for me. Um, just from a personal point of view, I think I would, I would have felt really like responsible. So eventually um, we did, you know, thankfully release it and it was controversial. You know, it was anything that's why I got a lot of the press that it did. To me, there was nothing controversial about it, but I think it's the people's reactions to it. So I remember, you know, there was a, a change.org petition to boycott P&G because of this ad. And it was making the rounds on Blue Lives Matter groups of, you know, I think people just are so deeply uncomfortable with race that even talking about it feels racist to them. And at first, the sentiment was very positive. We were seeing a lot of really good discussions um, in editorial and social media. But then it, uh, we started getting some heat. There started to be some, some very negative sentiment. And that was tough because, you know, we had to decide whether we were going to go forward with this and keep going. And we ultimately decided that, yeah, we're going to double down. This is a conversation that we need to have and we're going to keep going. So we continued to advertise. We doubled down on our PR efforts. We went as well, worked with uh, ABC and the show Blackish to create an entire episode on the talk. So that was, it was pretty powerful and I think really ignited a, a really good discussion around the country and actually around the world on bias and, uh, and the importance of, of having conversations. The talk went on to be celebrated in the industry and beyond. It won seven statues at the 2018 Clio Awards, including three golds. It also picked up that year's Emmy Award for Outstanding Commercial, P&G's second Emmy in the space of four years after Always Like a Girl in 2015. This was obviously an enormous thrill for everyone involved. Malik Vital was shooting a film and couldn't make the Emmy's ceremony, but he sent his mom instead, which for him actually brought the greater meaning of the project 
full circle. It was just nice to see my mom so excited. You know, my mom raised me on her own for her to be able to experience this. She went on stage and like talked and it's a story about mothers, you know, talking to their children. So it felt fitting when I got the statue. I just I gave it to my mom. I gave it to her because I'm like, you're the one that earned this. You, You busted your tail, you know. The talk was indeed a groundbreaking piece of advertising. And yet for all its accomplishments, something was missing. After the break, we'll look at the follow-up spot, The Look, and how it continued the conversation from a perspective that the talk had ignored. We'll also look at a third spot, The Choice, and its urgent appeal to white America after the murder of George Floyd. And we'll consider where P&G and the rest of corporate America is heading now, almost a year after a summer that promised to change everything. Once again, thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, GSTV. Readers of Muse by Clio may remember that Tombris and their client Moonpie aired a fun and memorable spot for the Super Bowl, featuring the wonderful and quirky Moonpie Child. That spot wasn't on television, but on GSTV, and created completely with the context in mind. While an unusual choice, it makes complete sense considering GSTV is a national video network just steps away from where Moonpies are sold. Could GSTV fuel your next creative campaign? To get started, visit gstv.com slash tagline. When Procter & Gamble released the talk in 2017, reaction was largely ecstatic, and rightly so. Here was one of the world's biggest advertisers, using creativity and its hefty media weight to talk honestly about race. Still, many found one aspect of the work frustrating, that it focused almost exclusively on mothers. This reinforced a negative stereotype about black fathers in America being absent from the family unit. A remarkable moment of public criticism happened in March 2018 when the Andy Awards live-streamed the statue round of their jury discussions. Jeff Edwards, the only African-American juror that day, told fellow juror Randall Smith, who happened to be an associate director at P&G, flat out that he was disappointed in that aspect of the work. Soon enough, Jeff was connected with Mark Pritchard, and they began planning a follow-up spot from the perspective that was missing. We just went to Mark and we said, okay, the talk did a great job of talking about the experience that parents have arming their kids for society. But if you really look at it carefully, it only kind of deals with women. There isn't a speaking role for a male in the entire piece. The people that are being killed in the streets are black males. And so, you know, once that light went off, we we did a little bit of a kind of like a self-reflection and we decided maybe we can tailor a message specifically to that audience. You want to believe that in all your work, it's going to connect with everybody. But what if we just did something that just kind of like explored the microaggressions that are associated with bias in the black community through the lens of a black male? You know, what if we told that story? And what if we told the story like in the cadence or the belief this happens every day with this same protagonist character? And then that's what we did. In the end, the creative coalition that Jeff had co-founded called Saturday Morning produced the follow-up spot. Saturday Morning was launched in 2016, a year before the talk came out, by Jeff and three friends, Keith Cartwright, Jimmy Smith, and Jayanta Jenkins. Incensed by the endless killings of black men by police, they had a vision of galvanizing the creative industries to create projects that could bring about societal change and end the cycle of violence and fear caused by racial bias and injustice. Keith Cartwright, who had the initial idea for Saturday Morning, saw a sequel to the talk as the perfect opportunity to get that started. When I saw the piece that came from BBDO out in the world, I was 
really surprised that it came from P&G, if I'm being honest, but also really proud that a brand would stand up and, and make a statement like that and, and decide to have a conversation that certainly wasn't being had by brands at the time. So it was, it was incredibly bold and um, really thoughtful and, and very nuanced. You know, I, I knew of Mark Pritchard at the time, but didn't know him, but was, was you know, very intrigued by what they were up to after seeing it. Keith and Jeff got to work on what would eventually become The Look, the second spot in P&G's trilogy on race. While it continued the conversation begun by its famous predecessor, conceptually, The Look was, in many ways, its opposite. The talk was about conversation. We wanted to create a silent film. We didn't want to have to explain anything because we had a belief that bias is so powerful and so strong that it doesn't require words to experience. So it is the journey of a man, black man, from the moment he wakes up until the time he gets to work. And there's a, there's a soundtrack, but there's no dialogue. And for us, the goal was to demonstrate all the bias that he experiences without having to say a word, but doing it just with, with looks and expressions. The resulting piece, which ended up being a minute 45, shows a black man going about his day, suffering withering looks of suspicion and disdain from white people at every turn. In the final scene, in a courtroom, we realize the man is a judge, a pillar of respect and authority in the community, though he isn't treated as such anywhere else. Five other scenes lead up to the courtroom scene, each of them carefully designed to reference key moments of racism historically, going back to the 1950s, parallels that were explored further on a companion website as well. The first scene is an educational scene, when the father is taking his son to school, and that is in reference to Brown versus the Board of Education. The second scene was um, about corporate America, and that was directly poked at affirmative action and seeing the elevator close as he's arriving to it, that, you know, being accepted into a company doesn't mean that you're going to be accepted. The third scene was uh, the dining scene, and that was a direct lift from the 1960s sit-ins. The next scene was the pool scene, and that actually was one of the most direct ones, which was the 1964 scene in motels when acid was poured into pools, to um, into all white pools to get black people to come out of those pools. The next scene is shopping, and that's obviously about not belonging. And then, and then finally, we end up on the courtroom scene, which is about justice. It was more of a storybook on history than it was a film. And not a word spoken, not one word spoken. These moments have shown up before. It wasn't just a past moment. It was also a present moment to show on the website you'll see how this has happened, say, in the 60s, but also we paralleled it to events from today. So the, the film is trying to bring about conversation about how to move forward and move past these, these sort of blights on our society uh, in the form of racism. Whereas the talk had had a black director and a white cinematographer, with the look, it was the opposite. Anthony Mandler, best known for making more than a dozen music videos with Rihanna, was chosen to direct. The DP was Malik Saeed, who was cinematographer on four Spike Lee movies and also had a range of commercial credits, from Apple to Nike. Keith says the pair provided a great balance for the material. P&G, rightfully so, wanted it to be a, a Black director. The feeling there was that a Black director would be able to bring nuance to something as specific as this because of their life experience. And for us, we you know, totally understood that. Uh, but Anthony put together a treatment that demonstrated something that we didn't think about, which is what this film also needs is the experience of the other side, right? The white experience. 
and being able to understand where they're coming from because he's lived around it and, you know, living in white society, he's seen it and he's heard it. So he can actually dial up or find legitimacy in those scenes where we may not, because we obviously don't live in that world. And then he brought on uh, Malik Saeed, who's a, a famous black cinematographer who shot, you know, Thomas Spike Lee movies, and he's, he's one of the best. So the audition process was finding someone who was expressive, but not overly expressive, who you had empathy for, someone who you may feel like you know, right? So not too much of a caricature, um, but just sort of your everyday man and uh, the person we cast with that role. And the same with the kid. It was, you know, someone who could sort of move through the day with the father in a way that felt real, that they felt that there was a genuine connection. But the kid represents the future. And what he's demonstrating is this sense of uh, naivete, right? He, he's not completely aware of what's going on. Um, and that's the joy and bliss of ignorance in the world that we live in until they're you know, damaged by the things that are, are real. And now here's where it got interesting is, okay, now who are the people that are going to be opposite of him? Because you're asking people to, to give a look of bias. And a lot of people are frankly uncomfortable with that. If you could imagine the casting of showing people and saying to, to people, okay, we need you to look at somebody with a hateful look. Well, but I wouldn't. Yeah, but, but for, for the purposes of this film, you know, dig into your, your inner um, bias and pull out, you know, what it would feel like to want to sit at another table in a cafe. That's what we're looking for. The music, a custom piano track from Music House Barking Owl, plays a key role as well, especially given the lack of dialogue. I'm going to tell you right now, we had Negro spirituals that we had placed on top of this. We had beautiful kind of gospel arrangements. We had orchestrations with finger pianos. We went to places that harken back to Jim Crow, to things that felt a little bit more kind of modern. And I'll be honest with you, what we found in, in the piano music is this wonderful repetition. That, that implies, if you if you think about it, and you hear the hear the track play, it is basically the same track, and it's just playing over. And then it goes up in key, and it comes down in key. But it's a repetitive track that basically starts when he opens his eyes and wakes up for the day, and ends when he's sitting at the the judge's chair and bench. And so that was even conceptual, right? That that this atrocity that we're talking about is is it is is it's relentless. Every time you wake up, you know you're going to go out into the world and you know that that look is going to happen. All rise. Look rolled out on PNG's social channels and on a microsite on June 18th, 2019, supported by Educational Materials for Schools. It earned widespread praise and media coverage and was celebrated across the industry as well. It won three Clios, and like the talk, it was nominated for the Emmy as well, although the prize that year went to Sandy Hook Promise and BBDO for a PSA about school shootings. As 2019 came to a close, P&G and its partners could be proud of their two powerful meditations on the black experience. 
Still, no one at the time could have known just what the summer of 2020 was about to bring. We do begin with breaking news. We want to welcome our viewers in the United States and all around the world. You're watching New Day, and it has been a painful night of violence and protest in Minneapolis. At this hour, fires are still burning on the south side of Minneapolis after protesters took to the streets to demand justice for George Floyd, the unarmed, handcuffed black man who pleaded with a police officer to let him breathe as the officer pinned him to the pavement with a knee to his neck. The week that George Floyd was killed, I think it was like that Thursday or Friday morning, the country was in a lot of pain and he felt just really compelled to want to do something. Justine Armour joined Grey New York as Chief Creative Officer in February 2020. Four months later, after George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police, she would help create the third spot in PNG's trilogy on race, a spot called The Choice. The project began when Mark Pritchard called Debbie Reiner, Gray's global client lead on PNG, looking for ideas on what the company could do or say about Floyd's death. Justine and John Petrullis, Gray's global chief creative officer, took the lead on the project, working with Keith Cartwright, whose own eponymous agency was affiliated with the Gray Network as well. John recalls how quickly they jumped into concepts. We probably brought him scripts two days after he had called, one and a half days maybe after he called. I think it was once we hit on that theme and recognized that theme, it was about trying to just express that as simply as we could. The theme was that white America had to stand up and take ownership for perpetuating systemic racism. The structure couldn't be more simple. Close-up images of black skin and white skin, with blocks of on-screen copy challenging white Americans directly to help over the haunting sounds of Moses Sumney's song, Doomed. The copy reads, Where are we to go? How are we to respond when we are shown over and over and over that our lives do not matter? Being white in America is not needing to state your life matters. And when your life matters, you have power. Now is the time to use it. Not being racist is not enough. Now is the time to be anti-racist. Words and feelings are not enough. Now is the time to take action. Read, listen, donate, plan, march, vote. Speak out, step in, step up. How you use your power is a choice. Choose action over observation. Choose progress over perfection. The whole spot is beautifully done, but John says beauty wasn't the point at all. Justine and I were talking about before this call, just how sad everything was at that time. It was a deeply sad time. So making sure that the words were very clear is really where all the revisions came in. It wasn't about poetry, honestly. It, it, It was about absolute clarity and being clear about what we were asking. They went back and forth on the copy for days. And actually, one person who had significant input was Oprah Winfrey who called Mark Pritchard one day with some suggestions. Justine and Keith both recall how surreal it was that Oprah was making copy changes to their spot. He had a call with Oprah about it on a Sunday for 90 minutes. The one thing that really stuck out to me is that word privilege, because at one point there was a, 
in a script that said how you use your privilege is a choice like that. And Oprah was the one who said, do not use that word privilege because a lot of people do not understand. Like they don't, they're one paycheck away from not being able to pay their rent. We were actually um, in a session working on it at the moment when she called. He's like, uh, I got to go. I got Oprah's on the phone. So he, he kind of fanned out. <laughs> it's really funny and kind of cute. And um, came back and was like, Oprah had a point of view on the spot. And she said, don't use the word privilege. What you should say is power. Because there is a sense that white people do have a sense of power just based on being white that black people may not have because of how they were brought into this country, regardless of their lot in life, right? They can agree with that, but privilege will piss people off. And it was the power that they have that they can apply to this moment that will actually help uplift. Because if white America joins in with black America, then this movement becomes something like the civil rights movement. Oprah's a pretty smart person. She's pretty smart. (laughs) She's pretty good. The other one was seeing the words, you have power over white skin, which obviously were calling people out on on the power that they have and and, um, calling them to use it. But obviously white power was and is such a prevalent force in society and that just became very, it felt a little bit provocative when people were concerned about that, but we stuck with that one. Justine had been listening to Moses Sumney in the months leading up to the summer. The aching sadness of the track just felt right for the time and place, the pain everyone was feeling in those early days in June. And it got to the point, we actually, because we, we, we talked about using sort of a spiritual track and Keith was really adamant that we shouldn't do something like that. But, you know, Moses Sumney is like he's a pretty outspoken artist and was very politically engaged and the song is haunting. And, it's, and you know, we, we weren't afraid of it feeling, you know, we needed, why people need to look at this and feel really sad about it. They needed to feel like, like a gut punch, you know. And so we weren't really flinching away from that. We were, we were definitely trying to cultivate like a deep sense of empathy. Concepted and produced in less than two weeks, The Choice premiered during Oprah Winfrey's two-night town hall on race, which aired on the Oprah Winfrey Network and across all 18 of Discovery's linear networks in the second week of June. Its message landed powerfully and memorably and helped amplify the growing calls for white people to be allies in the fight against racism. My observation was that a lot of black people felt really moved by it and felt like really seen by it. I think, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's very, it's impossible to, to know what a spot like this does other than makes sort of a, an issue like this more mainstream. I think advertising, when it can do something like this, you can make, you know, you get a message out like like this to a lot of people really quickly. I think that's really, it's kind of the power of it, right? We just, it takes a long time to make a movie. It takes a long time to write a book or, you know, but like an app, you can make a decision to have a cultural conversation and then 11 days later, it's on this massive platform and it's pushing the conversation forward. I think that's the magic of the thing that we do. In addition to releasing the choice, PNG also brought back both the talk and the look and aired all three spots through the rest of 2020, contextualizing the black experience for a white America that was slowly beginning to take the blinders off. To many, it felt like a watershed moment, though as Keith points out, nothing about the pain and outrage was new in the black community. 
George Floyd is a moment for some, but not for everyone. We've been, I've been hearing these stories, these George Floyd-like stories my whole life, and some even more atrocious than that one. So I think George Floyd caught the attention of America and the world, but it didn't surprise Black America. I think we were outraged, as we always have been, but I think white allyship helped propel the moment to what we experienced last year, if that makes sense. So, I, you know, the look and the talk and all those things, you know, we were just as outraged by Eric Gardner and Lando Castillo and this goes on and on and on and on and on, right? Uh, one thing didn't out, outdo the other. It just so happened that the world was outraged at a time when we were putting these things out. It was serendipitous. It's interesting to look back and realize how much has changed, at least from the perspective of white America, in the four years since the talk was released. It's heartening that what once seemed provocative now feels relatively tame. Of course, there are no illusions or quick fixes, but everyone I spoke to for this story said they're optimistic about one thing at least, that more conversations are happening, as P&G had urged in the early dark days of the Trump presidency, that some powerful brands are on board, and that it might be more than lip service, that the current movement might this time actually lead to real and lasting change. For a while, I thought it was just a moment in time, a trend that brands would be speaking about things like this. But I think the consumers are demanding it. Gen Z, if you look at them as a segment and what they care about, what's deep inside of their DNA is they want to know what you stand for as a brand. They're not going to buy into whatever you're selling unless they know you are, as an organization, good people, right? Or at least a part of what they believe in, their belief system. And they don't have to buy from you because with, you know, social media and all the things, they can just go find someone else. And they can also start a movement to go find something else. So brands are very cautious and careful. And I think brands are getting in front of that and taking a stand because they want to demonstrate to their consumers that we do have a viewpoint on these things. We do stand for something. We do care about you and your fellow man and woman. And by doing that, it expands. It's actually good. It's good for business. I think after what happened in in 2020, summer 2020, if you're a company and if you have not realized by now that you have responsibility in this whole thing, then then you shouldn't be in business. Um, To answer your question, I feel like companies are lagging. Absolutely do. What if those those companies got together as a uh, a group of Avengers and they just said, you know, let's take all this money this year. Let's not market one single thing and let's put it toward the neighborhoods in West Chicago. Let's, let's put it toward West LA. Let's, let's put it toward making sure that people are, are all vaccinated, you know, and that we create some sort of an allegiance with CVS to make sure that, that we're able to help facilitate these vaccinations in misrepresented communities. I mean, I know this is all kind of Pollyanna, but the reality is that those, those dollars are, they exist. There is a problem and the problem needs to be discussed. I feel like the fact that we haven't talked about it is the reason why we're talking about it 400 years later. In the U.S., we have obviously some very, very deep-rooted issues with race, but I think we have the we have the power to really accelerate change when we have the conversations and we have when we have the momentum. So to me, it's kind of it's almost funny in a way. It's just like three like now. If you say Blue Lives Matter now, I mean 
you're a douchebag to begin with. But if you say it now, really, I don't think you can. I don't think you can say that anymore. And like we're actually like actively defunding the police, which I just think is amazing. And now this ad, I would say, is like very tame, you know, um, compared to everything else that everyone's doing. But at the time, I think it was it was something that made people very uncomfortable. When I first moved to Amsterdam, actually, I, I um, met this colleague who's who's a friend of mine now, and he's a black French man, and he told me. He's like, oh, I didn't realize you you worked on that project. He's like, I showed that to my partner, who's a white woman, because they have a child together. And he's like, I want you to understand like what it's like to parent a black child and and what you might need to do, the kind of conversations that you might need to have with her. And I just thought that was like that. I think that's what really was gratifying. I think for for Brian and myself is just knowing that actually this can be used as, as not just um, a piece of content, but almost a tool to get people to to see and, and, and be aware of conversations or privileges they have, you know, by not having to have this conversation or ways to talk about it or whatever it is. But I think that's what's nice is just actually people finding something useful in it. You have the talk and then you have the look, which is focusing on black men, and then you have the choice. And that's how a, a good case study in that, you know, you might not get it exactly right on the first time, but you can keep learning and growing and, and talk about the issue in more evolved and nuanced ways and, and take what you've learned from the last project and build on that. So, yeah, but I think, they were always willing to be bold and, you know, not every decision is going to be perfect, but I think the intentions were right. P&G in March unveiled its latest initiative around the Black experience called Widen the Screen. It's a content creation, talent development, and partnership platform aimed at getting more Black creators into advertising, film, and TV. Gray created the launch spot, narrated by Mahershala Ali, a call to action to portray a more holistic view of Black life. It's a combination of ads and action that will hopefully break down barriers in entertainment from which we absorb so many of the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. And one of the things PG does, it isn't just in the messaging, it's they put so much into action. It's never, you know, you never come to them with just, hey, here's, here's a great idea. Uh, that, here's a great advertising idea. It's always got to be tied to action. It's going to make tangible, make a tangible difference and create change. So I think it's, it's, it's grown a lot and you're seeing it more and more, but you're seeing it more and more from companies that, that have the right to say, it. I think, I think it, it is actually, it can it have incredible negative impact when it's coming from a cynical place. Um, but that, that's happening less and less. I think now. I think people are just getting kind of sick of messaging. You know, I think when they, we're kind of over self-serving ads that don't do anything, don't take action. And I think what you're saying, Tim, is that when money matters, so if corporations are saying this has to happen, it happens. And that is actually starting to happen. And that, that's, I, I always feel like that's when you're not counting on the, 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 just the good intentions of people. You're forcing, I think you have to force change. And that is starting to happen. And then that will create, um, I think, the right effect and the right momentum. For Mark Pritchard, who steered all these efforts over the past four years, it hasn't always been easy or comfortable, but in many ways, that's the point. Being uncomfortable, having the conversation anyway, taking action anyway, so that each small step becomes slightly easier, perhaps this is the kind of progress that can actually work, with brands playing their role through creativity and media to lay out a vision for what America should be. The fact that Black parents have to have that talk about racism and prejudice with their children, that's, that's, a, that's a fact, um, uh, but it's uncomfortable if you don't know about that. The fact that there are these microaggressions and looks of, of, of racism and prejudice and disdain 
to black men, that's uncomfortable, but it's true. <laughs> the fact that, which is what we put in the choice, is that when you're white in America, you don't have to state that your life matters, as opposed to when you're black in America, you have to state that your life matters. And even with heat and backlash, we've decided on every one of these occasions to keep going because it was the right message. It was, it was truth. It was accurate. And, and it presented it something that we felt and we believe and we've heard more feedback, a greater degree of feedback, that it is a good discussion to have. And I said at the beginning of this, my dad was, was Mexican. His real dad's name was Gonzalez. And my parents were going, almost named me Mick. So I could have been Mickey Gonzalez. And I look at that and realize that stepdad's name was Pritchard. So I adopted the name Pritchard and I presented as white for uh, the majority of my life. So with that comes advantages or privileges. And I've, I've recognized those and recognized that my life could have been different had I been Mickey Gonzalez. And, and I've had the, call it the advantage or the privilege of presenting as white, where as if you're black and many uh, Hispanic and Asian Pacific and Native American indigenous don't have that privilege or advantage. So it's my job to use whatever privilege or power that I have, whether it's deserved or not, to make a difference, shine the light on bias and prejudice, break down the structural problems and structural inequalities of which there are many. And, uh, and our industry needs to do a lot because uh, we have a lot of structural inequalities that we need to address in order to be able to, to really uh, have the kind of equal world that we should all be living in. You've been listening to Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. Thanks to my guests this week, Nadal Ahmed, Brian Barnes, Malik Vital, Greg Hahn, Jeff Edwards, Keith Cartwright, Justine Armour, John Petrullis, and Mark Pritchard. Tagline is a production of Muse by Clio, the content division of the Clio Awards. This week's episode was produced by Carly Angeloni and edited by Lane McGibney. Our designer is Ashley Epping, our theme music is by Brian Englishman. Special thanks to the creative agency Gut and the PR agency Raven for helping us promote the show. And a big thank you as well to our sponsor, GSTV. For more about Tagline and to watch the ads we talk about on every episode, visit taglinepodcast.com or musebyclio.com. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen. I'm Tim Nudd. This wraps up season one of Tagline, but we'll be doing more episodes chatting with creative folks in the weeks ahead as we work on season two of deep dives into classic campaigns. Thank you all for listening this season, and we'll see you next time on Tagline. This episode of Tagline was brought to you by GSTV. Every day, millions of Americans get in their vehicles and go. Fueling drives commutes, commerce, and connection. And that's when GSTV has the undivided attention of one in three adults every month. GSTV's National Video Network owns a unique moment for innovative storytelling, when consumers are engaged, taking action today, and influenced for tomorrow. Fuel your next creative campaign with GSTV. To get started, visit gstv.com 
slash tagline. <laughs>